Uh, the reading for our sermon today is from 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, in today's culture, we're inherently suspicious of authority, aren't we? Political authority often proves to be corrupt. Authority in the workplace can prove to be abusive. We've seen that in the Me Too movement of late. We do grieve at the misuse of that authority. Even authority in the home and in the church, when used wrongfully, can be manipulative and sinful. So I think all of us, in some way or another, have a healthy skepticism of human authority. And yet, as we come to this passage Daniel has just read for us, we see that built into the church of Jesus Christ, including this, our very church, brothers and sisters, is a God-given structure of authority. And specifically today, we see that structure in the area of gender, a distinction between men and women. So we're in our fourth study in this letter of 1 Timothy, a letter written by the Apostle Paul in the first century A.D. to a young pastor, Timothy, at a young church in the thriving metropolis of Ephesus. And based on what Daniel has just read, I don't think I have to tell you that this is a challenging text to consider with you this morning, brothers and sisters. More than other texts we've considered of late, what this text teaches flies in the face of what our culture often understands to be fair, equitable, just, and loving. But just on the outset, let me remind you, dear church, as I've been reminded this past week, that God is God. He is not indebted to what we believe to be fair. His word is true because he has spoken it. And as the all-loving, all-beautiful God he's revealed himself to be, this teaching, along with all the teaching of Scripture, will be for his glory and our joy. So with that in mind, we will not be able to cover all the nuances of this text this morning. But with our time, let's hit on the three main points of Paul's teaching. Three things. Men and prayer women and godliness, and men, women, and the church. So first, men in prayer. We won't spend a lot of time here, but we can't simply breeze by verse 8 just because the rest of this passage merits so much of our attention. So look there with me. 
Paul picks up on the theme of prayer we considered last week, and he speaks specifically to men in the church at Ephesus. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We're not sure what the false teaching was like in Ephesus at this time. But it seems likely that this anger and quarreling of which Paul speaks has something to do with it. That within the church at Ephesus, arguments and debates were being had in a sinful way. And in the midst of all of this, Paul comes and places an emphasis on not just prayer, but holiness in prayer. Prayer cannot be merely what we say or how we say it or what we do while we say it. We must have what Paul calls holy hands reached out in prayer. So in those days, standing and extending the arms was a common stance in prayer. Today, we pray in different ways, in different cultures, in different places around the world. So what's being taught here is not a specific way to pray in how we posture our bodies Instead, the universal truth here taught by Paul is that regardless of whether we're standing or sitting or driving or almost about to fall asleep on our beds at night, our motivations, our very hearts ought to be holy, not fueled by desire to work division or to be right. God cares about the hearts of those who pray. So brothers, specifically, men of Loudoun Valley, Let's watch ourselves when we pray. I think, speaking at least from my own experience, we may at times be inclined to pray down to those we believe are less worthy in the church. Or we may like to hear our own voices in prayer, thinking that somehow the the external holiness it represents will cover up the secret sins we cover up and instead impress others. Let's watch our hearts Let's keep short accounts with God and others. Not, not coming to him in prayer, expecting him to be honored, that we would even spare the time when our hearts might be undermining the unity of our families or of his church. Let's not bypass verse 8, brothers. As an application from last week's sermon, I'd encourage you, brothers, to meditate on this text this week. Meditate and ask the Lord that our prayers as men at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church would lead this church not just in word or in doctrine, but in holiness of heart, in humility of heart. Men, we're called to lead our homes and our church, not just spouting out right sayings, but bending our hearts in humble prayerfulness. All right, that's verse 8. Second, women and godliness, second point. And here Paul turns from speaking to the men at Ephesus to the women, his sisters in the faith. Look there in verse 9. He writes, I desire likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So in Ephesus in the first century, much like Percival in the 21st century, dress was important. The way we present ourselves gives evidence to who we are and what we're about. And in Ephesus, specific styles of hairdressing and jewelry 
set women apart. So gaudy jewelry led women to show themselves as wealthy and ostentatious in that wealth. Other kinds of clothing showed women to be prostitutes, sexually suggestive. And so Paul here warns his sisters at the Ephesian church to be careful to show their godliness and their commitment to Christ in how they dress. However, the other women in the city are dressing for sinful purposes. Paul says, Christian women must dress for God's glory. Why? Because Christianity is all about rules and regulations and laws just like other religions? No. Not exactly. Because these women have been bought with a price. Because they have been saved from sin by the precious blood of Christ, and they must now live for God's glory as they were originally designed to live. As we considered when we began this study in this letter, Paul is emphatic that gospel doctrine must work itself out in gospel living. So he calls his sisters not just to external compliance, not just to wearing something that guards the face to show what sect they belong to, but to some external evidence of inner transformation, of new life in Christ. Church, brothers and sisters, we must never tire of urging one another on to holiness. Being a Christian doesn't mean just checking off a religion box on a government form. Being a Christian isn't just like adding another app to your life's smartphone. Being a Christian is about all of your life. Being a Christian means we've done away with the old and put on the new. We've been redeemed, we've been purchased, we've been made alive in Christ. And this means we must and we will now live differently. Because our allegiance has changed. We've traded teams. We're in the family of God, and as the sons and daughters of God, we will begin more and more to adopt the family resemblance. And so as Christians, we must live in holiness and godliness. This is where we'll find, listen, this is where we'll find utmost joy, because this is where we'll draw closest to our Father. And sisters, there is immediate application here for you. So in Northern Virginia in 2018, it's not braided hair or pearl earrings that signify ungodliness. But there will be other ways of dress you can probably identify better than I that will send a message of ungodliness and not a message of Christ. So prayerfully consider this. The way you present yourself, the way you dress, does it honor the Lord? And I know from my generation, and perhaps those younger than me, that the word, at least the way I was, kind of circles that I heard and teaching I heard growing up, the word modesty can sound like subjugation. It might be sometimes lumped in with abusive authority and patriarchalism. But sisters, Paul is writing this way before any of that stuff was showing up in our lives, and he means nothing of that sort. Hear that. He's urging you to honor God, the God who never abuses his, his authority as your father, the God who unceasingly cares for you. It's not always wrong to wear nice clothing or trendy clothing 
or fashionable clothing. It's certainly not wrong to care for your appearance. You're made in the image of God, and you're meant to steward your body and care for your body. Don't neglect yourself. Look nice. But also remember, your external appearance will never, ever be the most important thing about you. Look at these verses and notice that Paul doesn't just use negative commands. Do not, do not, do not. No, he goes to urge his sisters to strive after better things. Things that are more wonderful and more beautiful. He's saying clothe yourselves with good works, with godliness, with actions that honor Christ. I love how Peter says it elsewhere in his letters. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Our culture, men and women, are so after anti-aging. How can I somehow cover up what I don't want people to see? How can I somehow appear younger than I am? Listen, there is a beauty that never perishes, that never wanes away, that never goes away, that never dissipates a gentle and godly, quiet spirit. Sisters, that's true beauty. That's more joy than you'll ever get from the mere external fashion of the world. Wouldn't it be wonderful if when people thought of Loudon Valley Baptist Church, they, they would say to one another, I've noticed that in that church, men pray in unity. And women are godly. Church, more than anything, that will bring honor to Christ. That's the perfect instruction of Paul to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the question for us is, will we obey? And at this point, I'm especially concerned for those of you, brothers, and especially sisters, who will take this word this morning as particularly burdensome. If that's you, please hear me. This is an encouragement not to make you unhappy, but for your joy. Because this is an encouragement from a God who loves you. So as you seek to fight and die to yourself in certain areas, remember the one who fought and died for you. And see this not merely as a sort of vapid stipulation for you in this text, but a command for your joy. God is out for your joy, not for your begrudging obedience. So I'd encourage you not to go this alone. We are helped to be part of a community of brothers and sisters, some whose consciences will be weaker than others. We must hear from others how to obey this text. So talk to other women in the church you respect. Ask them for help and for prayer and for accountability so that we might be a holy church and so that we might be a joy-filled church. All right. Well, with the rest of our time, let's see those final five verses, 11 through 15, and consider men and women and their roles in the church. Look there in verse 11. Paul continues with his instructions for the women at Ephesus, and he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. These are some of the most hotly contested verses in all the, Old all the New Testament. 
There have been many, many scholars who have tried to explain them away. But before we address those verses, I think we must continue on to the next few verses. Because Paul is not uttering this just for Ephesus alone. He's not uttering this stuff out of thin air or on a whim. He's got a foundation he's building on. Look there in verse 13. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Do you see? Paul is basing his instructions on how men and women are to live in the local church, not on a whim, not on his own opinion, but on the very created order of the world. Our brother Andrew read part of the Genesis account for us earlier at the beginning of our service, but let me just remind you a little bit of what he read. So God created, and he created all things good. And when it came to the sixth day of creation, he made what he would show to be the crowning achievement of creation, and that was man in his own image. But it wasn't long before he recognized man on his own was incomplete and needed a helper. And so God, in his sovereign kindness, fashioned Eve, a a woman, out of Adam, and he joined them together in one flesh, in his image and for his glory. And Paul roots his teaching here in 1 Timothy in that, in Genesis, in this creation design of male and female. And as a result, we must notice that right off the bat, men and women are completely equal. No caveats. Male and female are alike made in the image of God alike loved by God, alike offered free salvation through the cross. So listen, sisters, your identity has no inferiority. And brothers, your identity possesses no superiority. We are alike fallen in our sin and alike loved by our gracious Savior. However, there is something else equally true in this Genesis account. And that is that although both genders are equal and made in the image of God, Adam was created first and then Eve came along as his companion. God gave an order to the genders. This idea is generally called complementarianism, a big word. that just means that God has created males and females to complement one another in their roles. Roles that are distinct and complement one another in the church and in the home. The opposite of this view is what is called egalitarianism, kind of the belief that men and women are pretty much just the same in role and function, that there's no difference and they're interchangeable. But church, that view dishonors both men and women. It dishonors both men and women by depriving us of our unique roles that God has given us to glorify him. The Bible teaches that God has so lovingly organized his creation that there is actually a harmony of roles in the genders that doesn't downplay one to the benefit of the other, but in fact elevates both so that male and female together live in a way that will bring honor to God. This is all part of what God calls very good. A role of man. Adam, who came first, is one of headship, authority, sacrificial, servant-hearted leadership. The role of woman, Eve, who came second, 
is one of submission and care and support. And just in case you're wondering how that isn't demeaning to women, I encourage you to think about the number one example of headship and submission in all of Scripture. If you have your Bibles open, turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2. There we read, starting in verse 5, Paul writes to the Philippian church, Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Since we're a culture that inherently is suspicious of authority, we're also a culture that is inherently viewing submission to authority as foolish and inferior. The church, look at Jesus. Truly God possessing all the riches of heaven and yet in such grace such love stooping to sinners like you and me submitting to the plan of the headship of his father Jesus by no means became less than God in his submission. And sisters, you by no means become less human or less worthy or less dignified or less anything in yours. Look at Jesus and see how his submission has brought us salvation. If you're a visitor with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I bet all this stuff sounds super weird. And that's okay. We're kind of fine with that. But the one thing we do hope you take away from today is that according to the truth of the gospel, each of us has rebelled against an authority in our lives. And that's God's authority. Each of us has not submitted to his rule, but instead thrown it off in hatred, and we've spat in God's eyes. And we deserve his punishment, and that punishment is death. But in his mercy... God sent his son, Jesus, to take that punishment for us in our place on the cross. Jesus died so that if you will repent of your sin, all your punishment will be placed on him and you will be restored to right relationship with God. New life forever. Look, look at the wonderful, submissive Savior and be saved. And church, look there again. Actually, for the first time now in verse 14. Because it seems like Paul isn't merely rooting his command for women in the church on the creation order, but also in what happened in the fall. He says there, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So as sin is entering the world, how does it enter? It enters by Eve being deceived and Adam following suit. 
it comes as roles of headship and submission are reversed. Eve and Satan challenge Adam's leadership. And it seems like Adam's fine. Fine with shirking his responsibility and his protection of his wife. The roles here are reversed as sin enters the world. And so Paul repeats his command even more strongly with verse 14 that in the church of God, we must follow the design of God. Headship of man, submission of women, both living humbly before the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in light of Paul's comments on creation design, now let's go back and look then at verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What does this mean? If this is God's design, what does it mean, and how is it good for us? Well, first off, it seems like what it means for a woman to be silent and learn quietly does not mean women are not permitted to speak in church at all. Just throwing that out there. It's apparent from other sections of Scripture that women sing, that women serve. It seems like they also pray in church services with their voices. In the life of the church, including the public worship services, women will speak. So in light of that, it seems like Paul is not as much after the total silence of his sisters at Ephesus as he is after the posture of their hearts in the local gathering as they listen to the teaching of the word. He's encouraging women to listen with quiet souls and humble hearts as elders proclaim the truth of Scripture. And in doing so, he limits the teaching and the exercising of authoritative teaching in the church, two things that we'll find out next week in 1 Timothy 3, applied to the office of elder, elder. He attributes and limits those things to qualified men. Not all men, qualified men. That is the good order of his design for his church. And this design, brothers and sisters, will bring us joy and fruitfulness and gladness as we spread the gospel and prepare for when our king returns. It'll give us joy. Brothers and sisters, this and our unique roles will give us a greater hunger and a greater love and a greater need and dependence upon our Savior. Do you see how that's good? Anything that increases your dependence on Jesus is good for your soul. And there in verse 15, Paul wraps up with one of the most enigmatic verses in all of the New Testament. We simply don't know exactly what he's getting at. Some have thought that what he's pointing to is the offspring as Jesus Christ coming through the woman Eve to crush the head of the serpent. But you'd think Paul, who never stopped at being pretty clear about the gospel, wouldn't have made it so hard to understand there. I think the best interpretation that we can land on here is that Paul, knowing that most women will have children, 
is going to say, as he says, she, pointing to the woman, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So Paul is helping women who will typically have children to see that that's an area where they're going to work out their salvation and become godly. You see how in verses 9 and 10, he encouraged women to live out gospel doctrine and gospel living. And he's doing the same thing here, giving practical application specifically to those who are mothers. All right, church, so where does this leave us? This passage of scripture teaches us God's right ordering and design of his church's authority structure and the complementary roles men and women will have in it. So how will this look? Well, to be honest, it will vary church to church. Because while Paul's principles are at work here, the application of them can be hard to understand. And so as different local churches and elders in those different local churches seek to wisely interpret and apply God's word, this may look differently in different churches. But how will this look at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church? Well, dear family, it will mean the elders of this church being responsible to lead us in right obedience to this instruction. It will mean us as elders being sensitive to what we see taught here and ordering this church according to Scripture, while at the same time, in every way possible, encouraging our sisters in this body to exercise their gifts for the advancement of the gospel. It will mean the elders of this church being careful to keep the right authoritative teaching of the Bible to qualified men, while at the same time being careful not to relegate women to the sidelines of our church. It means, as elders, being careful to urge our sisters, our dear sisters in Christ, to carefully, humbly, quietly listen to Scripture as it's taught while at the same time empowering our sisters to teach and lead other women into deeper understanding of God's word and all the intricacies of who he is. This is one of the reasons that we want to develop a thriving women's ministry here at Loudoun Valley, where women dig deep into God's word, into systematic theology and biblical theology, and then teach that to other women. And listen, I understand members of this church will come down on different positions of application here. I've spoken with a good bit of you about these things. I have valued each and every one of those conversations. This application of this text takes much prudence and prayer and study. And we always want to be coming back to God's word and continually conforming our practice to it. So if you have questions about what certain men and certain women do in our services or in our life as a church, I'd encourage you to come talk to me about those things. We do do all those things in what we believe is good conscience and good and right application of what we read here in Scripture. At the same time, always wanting to be reformed and ever reforming as we hear God's word preached and taught. So come talk to me. I'd love to talk with you more about the teaching and the application of this teaching. 
But I want us to end our study in this text this morning by concluding like this. We must obey what God has said here joyfully and embrace the mission he has sent us on as both men and women in his church. So as we close, let me just address the sisters in our church specifically. Let me just say, we need you. You are not second-class citizens. You are not incidental to this church, no matter what you may have heard in the past. You are key and pivotal to the success of this church. Jesus came to purchase your souls with his precious blood. And you have been given the greatest commission of all to go into the world and proclaim the gospel. So within this right framework of God's design, you sisters must feel all freedom in Christ to dive deep into his word. And even as you hear it quietly preached, going like a Berean and going back to it and thinking carefully through it and reading deep works of doctrine and sharing your thoughts with others and especially considering how you might teach other sisters to carefully divide God's word. This passage of scripture cautions you, sisters, but it also highlights your essential role in our body. So, brothers and sisters, let us both look to Christ. Let's strive in our unique complementary roles to get him glory here in our community, here in our church, and around the world, all for his eternal praise and what we believe and know to be our eternal joy. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we confess that we stand before your word and we need help. We, men and women, submit together to what the truth is that you teach here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, to your good design for your church and our roles in it. And Holy Spirit, we ask for ongoing unity and wisdom as we seek to honor you in this area. We pray ultimately that you would use the good complementary design of the genders in this local body to make your gospel more glorious here and wherever you might send us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.